The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. It is so good to see you. I've been uh, out of town for the last 11 days. Uh, Do not feel badly for me. I was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for six of those days. Um, And yes, the weather was absolutely gorgeous. Um, It was like 75 degrees, got to play golf with some good friends. Um, And then we missed the worst week of the year. We had some, we're doing a conference uh, later this year in August, the Global Leadership Summit that Westway is hosting in conjunction with Mitchell Brian. And uh, Ann and I and John Simpson, the pastor at Mitchell Brian and his wife, Mary, um, we just had to go to Phoenix um, over the over the last few days. So like we just missed the worst week of the year and I don't feel bad about that for you. Um, And I don't want you to feel bad about me. Although it did rain in Phoenix. It was like 45 degrees pouring down rain, um, but it wasn't minus four. So one of my, uh, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. If you've been here for a few years, you've heard me talk about C.S. Lewis before, and you probably know C.S. Lewis through the Chronicles of Narnia book series. The first book in that series is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, to which you C.S. Lewis nerds in the room will say, no, actually, that wasn't the first book. The first book is actually called The Magician's Nephew because it takes place earlier than that. So I know that, but we're just going to say The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the first book. How many of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia? Awesome. So uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a series of seven books that are really about a group of kids who go between like our world into this land called Narnia. And these four kids have been sent to the British countryside uh, during World War II to escape the Blitz, to escape the bombing of London. And they live in the home of the professor. Um, And the professor is sort of like C.S. Lewis, right? So if you read the story, you know the professor is sort of C.S. Lewis. And there's this magic wardrobe that at times allows them to enter into and then go into the land of Narnia. And they can't do it all the time, which is kind of important to what we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. Um, But they go back and forth between the land of Narnia. And after one of these such visits, um, Lucy and Edmund come back from Narnia. It's Lucy's second trip to Narnia, Edmund's first trip. And Edmund tells their older siblings, Peter and Susan, that he was playing along with Lucy and they didn't really go to Narnia. Because Lucy had told her siblings that they had gone, they were sort of believing her, and then Edmund, who's kind of a, he's kind of the um, Judas character in the book, I'm just spoiler alerting you this, but the book is like 50 years old, so if you haven't read it by now, tough. Um, Edmund is this, is this uh, Judas-type character, and they come out, and she starts talking about going to Narnia again. And Edmund's like, no, I was just playing along. I didn't, we didn't really go there. So they go to the professor to kind of sort this out. And they, the older siblings explain what had happened between Lucy and Edmund. And, and the professor asks them some questions, and they respond. He, they ask him some questions, and this is what he says. Logic, said the professor to half to himself, why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it's obvious she is not mad. 
For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. Do not make the mistake that the Chronicles of Narnia is a kid's book. C.S. Lewis is doing something in this little paragraph, in this little section, that he unpacked in a book called Mere Christianity. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Have you heard that? That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a good human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept that he was and is God. Did you hear that in the Chronicles of Narnia story when he was talking to Lucy? See, for C.S. Lewis, there were three choices about the reality of who Jesus was. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. And as we think about what we've read over the past several weeks now through the book of Mark, we've sort of seen those accusations against Jesus, haven't we? We've had him accused of being a liar. What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins lunatic. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. Lord, why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now this is the demon saying this. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See, what we're wrestling with is who is Jesus? That's what Mark is forcing us to wrestle with. He's presenting these stories and these scenes from Jesus's life, and he is leaving it to us to determine who Jesus is. Is he a liar? Is he lunatic? Is he Lord? And as we've been reading, I I wonder if you've noticed some of the transitions between the chapters. They're a little bit odd. Last week, um, Joe talked about chapter four. We had had these parables. And then all of a sudden, we had this really strange scene about Jesus calming the storm. And as we talked about this, and Joe mentioned this last week, See, if we didn't have the storm sequence at the end of chapter 4, we would be tempted to think that Jesus was just a great storyteller. We would be tempted to think that Jesus was a wordsmith spouting niceties. We would be tempted to take Jesus' words from Mark chapter 4 and put them on a coffee cup. Right? To rest in this nice Jesus 
who says nice things, tells us to be nice to each other, tells us to do all of these things. How can I describe the kingdom of God, Jesus says? What story should I use to illustrate it? It's like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches and birds make nests in its shade. And our takeaway from that, like, right, when we see Jesus as a storyteller, our little takeaway from that is, go be a mustard seed. Right? We find the little picture of the person holding the dirt and the little tree in their hand. And we, we meme that and we put it on Facebook and we put the verse over the top of it. And see, what happens is, if we're not careful, we, we neuter Jesus. We reduce him to a storyteller. And to keep you from falling for that, to keep us from falling for that, Mark tells what happened next. Jesus is on a boat with his disciples, four of whom were professional fishermen. And a storm comes up and they are scared to death. Imagine what that would take for professional fishermen to be afraid. And where's Jesus? Mark 4 tells us that he's in the back of the boat, his head sweetly on a little pillow. It actually says, not the sweetly part, but he's on a cushion, sleeping. And they rightly say, don't you care about us? Did you notice they called him teacher? That matters. See, because Jesus had just spent time teaching them so they relegate him to teacher in that moment. Teacher, don't you care that we are drowning? And he wakes up and he tells the wind and the storm to shut up and to calm down. And it does. And then he says, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? And then they ask the question, which is a far more reasonable question than we give it credit for. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. See, this is a transition. Did you hear the word faith? So it's not a surprise then that we're going to go into chapter 5 and we are going to talk about faith. But notice that Jesus doesn't tell them who he is. He shows them. Let's read Mark 5 verses 1 to 20. You can follow along in your book. You can follow along in your Bible app. We're going to read verses 1 to 20. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by, evil, by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replied, 
My name is Legion because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send him to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered into the pigs, and the entire herd of the 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Press pause. Can you imagine that scene for a moment? Like if you were, like if that happened, we would all be like, what in the world just happened? Because we wouldn't have seen those demons, right? This would have been a crazy, crazy scene. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he's been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. So as I was reading and thinking and studying and praying, a few observations from this text. Um, You should know that this is the Gentile side of the lake. So Jesus has left the Jewish side of the lake and he's gone to the Gentile side of the lake. So these are people who, who did not have any frame of reference for a Messiah, which is going to give us a little bit of insight into this story about why he, wanted, he gave this man permission to go and tell other people about him. If you remember, we've talked about like, why does Jesus want everyone to, to not speak about him? Why does he want the Jewish people to keep it quiet? Because they all had assumptions about who Jesus was, and he didn't want their assumption getting in the way of reality. See, with a Gentile, he doesn't have that same concern. He's like, no, go, go and tell your people. He's in the Gentile side. I want you to notice, too, that up until this moment, Jesus has cast out individual demons for individual, from individual people. The word legion is a Roman army term. It was the largest unit of measurement in the Roman army, approximately 6,000 men at full strength. There may not have been 6,000 demons in this man, but if there were about 2,000 pigs, I think we can kind of assume there are probably about 2,000 demons within this man. And I want you to notice the level of power, how Jesus powers up. Who is this man that controls wind and the waves? Oh, you've seen nothing because I'm about to cast 2,000 demons out of one person. Like if you think that was amazing, observe, sit back and watch. And I want you to notice too that when those demons hit the pigs, there's chaos, death, and destruction. And I think what we can take away from that is for those of us who are not followers of Christ, the things that are lurking inside of you are going to lead you to chaos, death, and destruction. And you may not think that, you may not believe that, but those demons were out for chaos, death, and destruction. 
And as soon as they had unfettered access to where no one was going to interfere with them, that is exactly what they brought. Notice that when all the townspeople show up and they see the man that they had banished to the tombs. So think about this for a minute. This man has so many demons in him. He's so uncontrollable that they banish him away. They lock him up. They chain him. And when they show up and they see him sitting there, the text tells us that he's in his right mind, dressed in clothes. They were scared to death. They're scared of what he might do to them about what he might say. They were afraid and what they did was they asked Jesus to leave. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't stay where he's not welcome. Do you see that in the story? See, we, we tend to think that Jesus forces himself upon us. That he makes demands of us that we accept him. But these people did not believe in him and they wanted him to leave, so he did. And when the man begged to go with Jesus, he said no, and then he sent him on a mission. And as we've talked about this so many times over the past several months, like how many of us just want to go and be with Jesus? How many of us are ready for Jesus to come back and us to go and be with Jesus? So just four of you. Okay, five. Like, we want to go and be with Jesus, right? We want, we want to get out of here. And Jesus has a mission. He says, it's not time. You have a mission. You have a purpose. And this is for us. We have a mission. We have a purpose. And it's the same mission. It's to go and tell other people everything the Lord has done for us and how merciful he's been to us. That's our mission. So I want to encourage you to not just sit at home just waiting this thing out. You just can't wait for God to come back. It's going to be wonderful. It will be. I can't wait to get out of here. But Jesus has a mission and he has a purpose for us. Let's continue. This is verses 21 to 34. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake. It's back on the Jewish side. Where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Do you notice some similarities? People see Jesus, what do they do? They fall at his feet. Pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman, had suffer a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she had thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. 
Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. You got to love the disciples. I mean, what a courageous thing to say to Jesus. Look at the crowd. How... What do you mean did someone touch you? But I think we can assume by the response of the disciples that lots of people had in fact touched Jesus that day. And as I'm reading and reflecting, she was the only one that was healed. Why is it that Jesus could be in a crowd of people walking through them hurriedly because he's trying to get to Jairus' house, probably talking, touching other people. Why was she the only person to be healed? Well, to ask the question is to answer it, right? Because she had faith. Because she knew what she wanted from him was healing. And I think the reality for many of us, is that we aimlessly wander through life completely unaware of Jesus in our midst. I think we walk around, we don't see him, we don't take time, we're so focused on ourselves and our wants and our needs, and those things require absolutely no faith. And when we do that, we miss out on any opportunity to be healed. Because our choice is to wander aimlessly through life. See, we have no faith in him. We only have faith in ourselves. And Joe talked about this last week. There are people that hear the good news of Jesus. There are people that see and experience Jesus healing other people, working in the lives of other people, and often our response is to reject him, is to think that would never happen to me. And I think that there are so many times, and this is one of those moments where, where we look at the scripture, right? And we think to ourselves, well, if only I had been alive then, I would not reject Jesus. I would not turn my back on Jesus. I would have faith in Jesus. And the reality of it is, no, you wouldn't. These people had Jesus in their midst. And for the, for the bulk of people that ever encountered with him, him, they had nothing to do with him. And see, this would be our story and if you don't believe that, if you don't think that's you, my question is this. How are you encountering Jesus on a daily basis? What does this look like in your life? Think about all of the access that we have to knowing who Jesus is. 
to experiencing the reality of Jesus. And I'm not just talking about Bibles. I'm not just talking about Bible reading plans. I'm not just talking about spending time in small group. I'm not just talking about the gathering or serving or giving or any of the other things. See, as followers of Christ, we have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. How, how many of us access that? How many of us take advantage of that? Are you acting in faith? Does the reality of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you affect your life? They had Jesus in their midst and they told him to leave. They had him in the market and all they had to do was touch his robe. To believe that that would make a difference in their lives. And only one did. Are you acting within the power of the spirit within, that lives inside of you in faith? Is it making a difference? Let's finish this chapter out. Verses 35 to 43. First off, imagine being Jairus. Your daughter's sick. You want Jesus to hurry up and get to your house. And this woman comes up and touches Jesus. Probably feel a little anxious, wouldn't you? While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the... See the word? Do you see who they think Jesus is? There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked why all this commotion and weeping. The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him. But he made them all leave and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old, you know that that's the same amount of time that the woman was bleeding. Immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. See, the people who needed to have faith had the faith. They believed that Jesus could do something, and he did. The people who had no faith, you might say Jesus had little use for them. I wonder what do we have to have in order to encounter Jesus? And we say faith, right? There's your coffee cup verse. There's your coffee cup phrase, faith. As I was thinking about faith, I think of courage. I think of boldness. I think of desire 
I think of belief. I think in order to have faith, you have to be present. You have to ask, you have to seek, you have to knock. And aren't these the behaviors that we see in this chapter? Faith is not sitting idly by in a market and watch Jesus walking by and saying, oh, I wish he would do something for me. Faith is not sitting idly by as Jesus is walking through the market and me having nothing to do with him. Faith is not having someone sick and not calling upon Jesus when he gets off the boat. That's not what faith is. Faith is doing something. Faith is action. See, the woman had to intentionally reach out and touch the robe of Jesus in order to be healed. She had to do that. She had to make that choice. Faith requires us to ignore the doubters, the disbelievers, and the mockers. Faith requires us to let Jesus into the room. Do you want this? Do you want this? How many of you remember the movie, The Empire Strikes Back? That thing is like 40 years old at this point. Can you believe that? Like, I think to myself, yeah, I remember Empire Strikes Back. That was like 10 years ago. Nope, 40. There's this scene in The Empire Strikes Back. Again, again, this is not a spoiler. If you haven't seen it by now, like, I don't care. You know how I feel about spoilers. There's this scene where Luke Skywalker flies to the planet Dagobah to meet Yoda. Not baby Yoda. That's something else. Flies to Dagobah to meet Yoda, to be trained to become a Jedi. And his ship sinks into the swamp. Do you remember that? Well, it's time for Luke to leave, but he has this problem because his X-wing is sunk in the swamp. So he has this dialogue, this conversation with Yoda about how he's going to use the force to pull the X-wing out, right? Key line, Luke's like, I'm going to try. And what does Yoda say? There is no try. There is do or do not, right? So Luke gets in there in his young infant Jedi power and tries, and the X-Wing sinks further into the muck. And he goes off all dejected because he's a sad little boy. And then Yoda, all like this tall of him, two feet tall, sticks out his little, probably claw, right? Pulls the X-Wing out. Lands it on ground and pouty Luke comes running up. And he says, I don't believe it. Do you remember Yoda's line? That's why you fail. See? Do you want the kind of faith that will heal you? Do you want to be changed by Jesus Christ? And if we can't, I know like our tradition, we probably don't say things in response too much. But I wonder what the lack of response 
has to say about the status of our hearts. Because this is a faith that I want. This is a faith that I need. And I think that there are a lot of people who are Luke Skywalker. We fail because we don't believe. See, what we have done and our Christian culture has forced this upon us. We have relegated Jesus to teacher. We have relegated Jesus to a nice verse spouter that I can put on my calendar, I can type on Facebook. And the reality of it is, is we don't have because we don't ask. That's James 4, 2 to 3. You get, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. See, this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, she was at the end of her rope. She had expended all of her finances to be healed. She had nothing left. So she went to Jesus. Jairus, his daughter's sick, and now she's dead and has nothing left. But James continues, even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Do you ever read the Bible and you're like, oh, that verse just so applies to my heart. In case you didn't hear it, he says, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. So we all then want to ask God, right? Well, if that, according to this text, the teaching is I'm supposed to ask God. And I'm going to get whatever I want. Not so fast. Even the things you ask for, you don't get because your motives are wrong. See, what do we want? What are we seeking after? What difference has faith made in my life? Do I really have faith? I'm not asking you if you believe in the faith of Christianity. I'm asking you if you have faith. It doesn't have to be a lot of faith. It can be mustard seed faith. But do you have faith? Earlier this morning, we sang this song, Do It Again. And the first part of the lyric says this. Walking around these walls, I thought by now they'd fall. A little later this year, we're going to do a series called The Songs They Sang and The Songs We Sing. Here's a little preview. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, what that songwriter is referring to is the scene in the book of Joshua when they went to the city of Jericho. They were told by God to march around the walls of Jericho for seven days, once every day for six days and seven times on the seventh day. So there were surely people walking around those walls, like on day three, thinking for sure they were going to fall by now. And then day seven, seven times, walking around these walls, I thought by now they would fall. See, that required faith. But it didn't just require faith, it required courage, right? It required action. They had to get out of their tents and actually walk around the city in order for those walls to fall. 
And I think the action part is where many of us fail. We don't take the steps. I think if, if that were happening today, many of us would not even get out of our tent. Because here's what would happen. It'd be time to go walk around Jericho. And we would get up. And we start walking toward the door. And then your phone is going to ding. You're going to turn around. You're going to go back to your phone. You're going to look at the notification that you received. That you find your affirmation from. And then you're going to spend the next three hours looking at TikTok. You know that's true. Do you understand that, that tech companies have psychologists working for them? Whose sole job is to keep you in your phone? So you're going to look at TikTok and you, at some, you'll snap out of it, right? You all have that snap out of it moment. Like you look at the clock and you'll be like, oh my goodness, where'd those three hours go? Like that almost happened to me today, in fact. I had a, I finished my sermon, I finished my sermon. I've been having an issue getting it to my iPad, so I, may, I had to check my iPad to make sure it was on there. But on my home screen was a note with like four notifications from Instagram. So of course, because I'm a sinful human being, instead of going to check what I should check on my phone, what did I, or my iPad, what did I do? Instagram. And like I'm two minutes into that and I'm like, oh my goodness. So I did something that many of you need the courage to do. Turn off your notifications. I've never just looked at my phone for three minutes. Never. And neither have you. So we fall into that. We fall into that aimless wandering. And then we have the audacity to wonder why God isn't working in our lives. Is that you? The thing that you get pulled into, the thing that you get sucked into. And then you wonder why God isn't working in your lives. And I think the reality of it is we're just too busy with nothing. And here's the best news from this message. And you're like, oh man, I need some good news after this beat up I'm getting. That's what happens when I'm gone for 11 days. I work on a sermon. When Jesus asked who touched me, he was not asking them to chastise them. He was not asking them so we could call them out in front of everyone else. He was doing it to give them hope. Remember what he said? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Isn't that good news? Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says this. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he's faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy. We'll find grace to help us when we need it the most. The woman was afraid. Jesus is calling her. And what he does is he offers us and her hope. 
That's what he wants. That's what he gives. And bold, courageous faith that leads to action is what his desire is for us. That we would recognize that our faith is not just in some abstract set of beliefs. But faith is in the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And my hope and my prayer for you this morning and for this week is that you would see, hear, and experience the Jesus who dwells within you. That you would not walk by him. That you would put your phone down for three stinking seconds and actually interact with the God of the universe who wants a relationship with you. And not settle for some fake relationship that has been algorithmed to make you only see what you want to see. Jesus offers so much more than that. He offers life. He offers hope. He offers fulfillment. He's offered you himself. And our response is to, is to believe in it and act upon it. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for your words that challenge and convict. May we be encouraged by that. May we see that you are not angry with us when you call out to us. You are not angry. You want to give us life. You want to give us hope. And what you ask for is trust. What you ask for is faith. What you ask for is action that demonstrates the reality of what we believe. For those of us who, who've been bleeding for 12 years, maybe not literally, but for those of us who are hurting, God, will you give us the courage to come to you? For those of us that are dead, we need you to act upon us in a big way. We need someone else to act in faith for us. Pray that we would be sensitive and aware of those dead in our midst. That we would bring you to them. It's in your sons and we pray.